Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's podcast of the One Million by One Million Global Virtual Accelerator. We are speaking with Anirudh Suri of the Indian Internet Fund. Welcome, Anirudh. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Ramona. Thanks. Pleasure to be on it. Well, help us introduce you to our audience. Tell us about your fund, your investment focus, how big is the fund, what size investments do you make? Let's just familiarize our audience with you. Sure, sure. We are an early stage uh, uh, seed to series A uh, focused fund. We invest primarily in technology-based ventures, and we're typically uh, investors who come in right after the family and friends round and before a larger venture capital fund will come in for a Series A or a Series B round. Um, So typically, we end up being the first institutional investors in a venture. We invest uh, anywhere... So the fund, actually, so we have a U.S. and an India-based fund, and across the two countries, two geographies, we have about $65 million that we've invested across the U.S. and India. Okay. Um, and uh, in India, we've primarily uh, focused, as I was saying, on tech investments. We've done about 15 or 16 investments so far um, across different sectors. Uh, so this includes... Uh, everything from vertical e-commerce to media entertainment, music apps, uh, big data analytics firms, uh, advertising technology, travel commerce, etc. So wide range under the broad umbrella of technology. And what is the uh, typical size of investment? Right. Yeah. Uh, so typically we invest anywhere between... Uh, Fifty to hundred thousand dollars on the lower end to about half a million on the top end uh, as our first investment into a company, and then mm-hmm. we might follow on with more capital um, as the company evolves. Okay, and what um, about geography? You said India and U.S. Could you double click down on that and elaborate a little bit on? Are you looking at? funds that are Indian market-facing, global market-facing, U.S. market-facing, where do they need to be based? A little bit more color on that? Sure. So it's actually uh, a bit of all of that. Uh, our main, uh, I guess, uh, dimension that we work on is that there has to be an India angle to the company. So yep. that could mean that the company is based out of India but is targeting the U.S. market. It could also mm-hmm. mean the company is based in the U.S. but is targeting the Indian market. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could mean that uh, the company is based in India and targeting a global market broadly, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. So we really have uh, India at the core. Uh, but beyond that, you know, the company could be focused on any market outside of India as well. Okay. Uh, so if you look at our investments so far, about five or six of them of the 15 are actually based out of the U.S. Uh, the others are mostly based out of India, though we have a couple of investments that are based out uh, of, uh, for example, uh, Hong Kong, Sri Lanka, etc. as well. But they have an India Okay. Focus. Talk to us about your current portfolio. What are the highlights? What have you invested in? And 
Could you also provide some analysis on why you've decided to invest in those companies? Sure. So I'll talk about some of our existing companies first. So, uh, you know, one of the companies that uh, is in our portfolio that has done really well is a company called Tala, uh, which used to be called InVenture earlier. Uh, it's based out of Los Angeles in the U.S. Uh, they <clears throat> have been focused on the Indian market, but have also expanded beyond the Indian market to countries like Kenya, Philippines, etc. Uh, they're primarily a fintech startup, uh, has raised money subsequently from companies like Google, uh, sorry, venture capital funds like Google, uh, lowercase capital, etc. What they do, for example, uh, I'll spend a couple of minutes on them because they've actually done really well. Mm-hmm. They uh, primarily started off as a company that started to build credit scores for the unbanked. So while mm-hmm. all of us know that there are many credit agencies out there that are building credit scores for people with bank accounts and extensive banking history, yeah. credit cards, etc., uh, there was a big gap in the global market um, for building credit scores or some sort of credit scoring mechanism for the unbanked. So people yeah. who were sort of on the periphery of the financial systems, uh, but there weren't any clear ways of building credit scores um, for that uh, segment. And there were mm-hmm. a lot of people who were looking to lend to that segment, uh, you know, from micro uh, institutions, sort of banking institutions, to uh, affordable housing finance institutions, uh, to NBFCs in India, etc. There were a lot of people and institutions looking to lend to that bottom of the pyramid slash underserved uh, banking segments. Uh, so this company yeah. basically started using multiple data points that they were gathering from uh, people's mobile phone data, how many times they were getting their phones recharged, how often how often were they paying their mobile phone bills on time, things like that, uh, as opposed to your typical credit card mm-hmm. company that would look at your bank account statements and your credit card statements. So they had a different uh, way of evaluating them. Uh, They started off doing that, and now they evolved to uh, actually lending on their own as well. So they now have their own book uh, through which they lend to people uh, and small businesses in a bunch of countries across the world. I see. So they are are turning into a financial institution. That's right. That's right. And they've, uh, you know, we invested. We were one of the first uh, few investors in the company, along with Eric Schmidt from Google and a few other angel investors mm-hmm. from the U.S. and India. Um, and now the company has gone on to raise three rounds since the last round being, um, I believe, a twenty-five million dollar round uh, led by Lowercase Capital. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a fund that Chris Saka, uh, who you might yeah. know. Um, right. So now what they've done is, you know, in Kenya, Philippines, India, etc., they're lending. The algorithms have evolved over the last few years extensively based on the data that they've collected over time. Uh, so they're doing very well. The reason why we invest in them, that was the other question you asked, um, Primarily two reasons in this case. One uh, was the entrepreneur uh, and the team at the time, uh, you know, for many early stage investors, obviously that's the first hook often uh, mm-hmm. that gets you interested. Uh, the entrepreneur and the, uh, and the passion that the entrepreneur is bringing to the problem they're trying to solve. And the second reason in this case was actually the problem itself. 
we, we thought that the problem was very pertinent. We thought that the way uh, Shivani, the CEO in this case, she was approaching this problem was very interesting, and we thought that it was a big problem, a uh, mm-hmm. global problem, and that if we were able to uh, crack that problem, uh, then we would have a big company on our hands. Mm-hmm. And, and it sounds like the original business model probably had a relatively low TAM, but uh, turning it into a financial institution opens up a much bigger TAM, right? That's right. That's right. Uh, the initial uh, focus, you know, was in the Indian market, uh, primarily focused on affordable housing institutions, microfinance institutions, etc. Uh, but we very quickly realized that um, just providing them credit scores was not going to actually be uh, a very profitable venture in the long run, and right. that we were leaving a lot of. Uh, that we on the table by simply providing credit scores to these institutions. And, mm-hmm. and, and we believe that given that we had uh, such a good understanding of the consumer uh, or the potential borrower... The best the way case, to derive value would be to actually lend to them. That's right. That's right. Uh, okay. So, Do you want to talk about uh, so any other company, company in your portfolio? Sure. Uh, Another company that's uh, very interesting uh, is uh, a company called uh, Tukitaki. Uh, they, again, have pivoted over time. Uh, they, they've come from an incubator from IIM, IIM Ahmedabad, Indian Institute of Management in Ahmedabad, uh, where we met them first. <clears throat> they initially started off as an advertising technology company where they were building out... Uh, a platform where advertisers, online advertisers, people who are advertising online, could, uh, you know, the problem they were trying to solve was, uh, very simply put, today if you're an advertiser online, you either advertise on Facebook or Google primarily. Those are the two big platforms where most online advertisers yeah. are spending their ad dollars. Uh, the problem that existed uh, that Tukitaki identified was that when advertisers were advertising on Facebook, they could primarily only target uh, using data available on Facebook or to Facebook, which was primarily social data. If they're advertising on Google, then they were uh, targeting people using data that was available to Google, which was primarily your browsing history or browsing behavior. What this company, Tukitaki, tried to do was to combine the two. To, to build basically a layer uh, on top that would, when you were targeting either on Facebook or on Google, to combine data available about uh, consumers on both platforms. Right? So you would combine browsing information, search information, search history, plus social activity. Uh, that's how they started off. Uh, and that was interesting. That grew fairly rapidly in India. Uh, but the company has now evolved to actually become a big data analytics firm. They were working with a lot so of data. It's not an ad uh, network. Uh, the business model and the go-to-market strategy is not an ad network model. It's an analytics company. That's right. So they've now evolved to become a big data analytics company, uh, working with banking institutions, insurance companies, etc., uh, mm-hmm. primarily on the land side and uh, are working out lots of different big data solutions for these companies. The, the okay. entrepreneurs in this case had a strong data background to begin with, um, 
you know, had worked at DoubleClick, etc. in the past in the U.S. Um, so they, they came to it from a, a perspective where they were going to combine big data with just add uh, tech. But they realized, mm-hmm. again, that, you know, they could uh, target a much bigger market by actually applying the same big data tools that they were using in the ad tech context to other problems that some of their customers were facing. Right. Okay. Um, Great. So again, very interesting in the sense that you know they've evolved, and I think with most of the investments we've made uh, at the very early stages, we we've, we've seen this pattern, uh, especially in the successful startups that uh, companies and entrepreneurs evolve to find different markets, bigger markets, different uh, bigger business models to solve. Yeah. Different business models, and that's partly uh, I would say the reason why some of these companies have been more successful than others. Well, and the stage at which you invest, which is pretty early and, and somewhat unusual also for the Indian market, it's um, things are not as clear as they are later on. So this is a point where people are experimenting, and you're, if you're willing to go in early with the understanding that there will be changes, that's a very interesting point to get involved in a company. That's right. I think and that's, that's sort of partly what's so exciting about investing at the early stage as well is that you end up being, or end up at least, you know, uh, wanting to be, uh, and often end up being uh, partners, part partners to your portfolio companies, right? Uh, because you know that, uh, you know, you are you basically investing when the idea is still at its infancy, yeah. and partly our role is, uh, given you know we we have this broad sort of bird's eye view on what all is going on in the in the technology world is to help our uh, investee companies to find and continuously explore how they can evolve, right? Um, yeah. So how do we so, take that um, feed into like a booming Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what trends do you see in your current deal flow? This is a question I always ask investors who look at a lot of deals is just to gauge what are the you know, what kind of trends are bubbling up to the top? Well, how do you synthesize what you're seeing right now? Sure. So, you know, India is at a very interesting uh, point right now, the Indian technology startup space. Um, the reason I say that it's at a very interesting point is that as I see it over the last five to seven years, since, let's say, 2009-10, the Indian market has gone on and, uh, you know, basically figured out how to replicate some of the models that have existed in the U.S., uh, more recently in China, et cetera, and uh, replicated those in the U.S., uh, in, in, in India, sorry. Um, and these were basically the fundamental basic ideas that had to exist in a online commerce world. Yeah, so concept arbitrage. Classifieds, <laughs> e-commerce companies, cab aggregators, etc. You know, these are the ideas that have right. that have yielded the the so-called unicorns in India, right? So from the Flipkarts to the Olas of the world. Right. I think uh, this was partly, I would say, the easier bit on 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 the ideation side for entrepreneurs yeah. because yeah, yeah, absolutely, you can easily see ideas. And, uh, the ecosystem developed well on, on the wings of these concept arbitrage deals. Correct. 
Um, and so in, in that sense, uh, the Indian tech startup scene has, the, the, the trajectory has been fairly similar to what you might have seen in the U.S. Uh, in the sense that your basic ideas um, get taken care of by entrepreneurs first. Now the second stage that the Indian market is now entering into is where your idea has to be a lot more distinct, a lot more uh, India-specific in many ways. It can't simply be a copy or a replica of what has happened in uh, in the U.S. or China, etc. Right, so which is why I think India is entering an interesting phase now, where and this sort of jives with the question you've asked about what trends we're seeing in our deal flow. Uh, because now what we're finding is that entrepreneurs have to think much harder about what their idea or their startup is going to be about. Yeah, uh, it's no longer enough for them to be replicating something because a lot of those initial ideas, as I was saying, have been taken care of right, by the company yeah. that has emerged and become big in the last few years. Uh, so what's interesting now about what we're seeing in our deal flow is that entrepreneurs are finding niches. Entrepreneurs are finding uh, underlying gaps or problems in the market, uh, in the Indian market, and they're starting to think a lot more bottoms up Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas I think the first five, ten years of the Indian textile space has been very top-down uh, thinking. Now it's starting to be a lot more bottoms-up thinking where people are seeing specific problems, whether in the enterprise space or in the consumer space, and saying, okay, now how do I address this problem? Yeah, okay. I have a question that I want to double-click on on this trend, um, you know, one of the big uh, differences in the Indian market that doesn't exist in the U.S. market is this abundant supply of cheap labor. So are you seeing um, business models and business ideas that really creatively take advantage of that phenomenon to offer value to customers? And do you have any examples? See, I think if you look at uh, even the companies that have become unicorns or uh, are larger companies in the Indian context today, many of them have actually taken advantage of the cheap labor uh, advantage that India offers. So when you look at an Amazon or a Flipkart today, um, sure. the fact delivery. that cash and delivery yeah. Uh, Ola, uh, the same thing, so cheap drivers. Ola, the same thing, cheap drivers. Uh, but those are still concept uh, arbitrage um, points. They're, uh, in the delivery infrastructure in India has been lacking for for a long time, so, and that is just getting developed. And, yes, there is a big uh, labor advantage there. But beyond just pure delivery, do you see other uh, are the nuances to this phenomenon? You know, not. not uh, I'm. I'm trying to think. It's a good question. Uh, you know, I, I'll. I'll put one caveat to that uh, first, and then I'll try and sort of give you some examples of ideas we've seen where they're like arbitraging, sort of leveraging this arbitrage. See, the problem with India, uh, with the cheap labor, with this perception that India has a lot of cheap labor, a lot of abundant labor. It is. That's true. But I think mm-hmm. where, where India lacks today, where India really needs to pick up its 
the skill level of this abundant labor, right? When when the skill and motivation of the abundant labor is lacking, then actually the abundant labor actually in a way becomes a, 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 a perceived advantage, but not an actual advantage on the ground. Right? But that is part uh, of the uh, the opportunity, right? To train that unskilled labor in a particular skill set and really taking advantage of that. That's right. That's right. Of course. So every challenge obviously is an opportunity as well. Uh, I think training of that labor, uh, training of the uh, you know vast amounts of youth that that India is producing, vast amounts of college graduates that India is producing, you know, employability is a big big problem uh, in India. I think, and uh, and that's why you're finding that ed tech or education tech. Uh, is is I think one of the more exciting spaces in in India because it's a compulsion more than simply an opportunity. Right? India cannot educate its um, vast numbers of youth using the traditional physical education infrastructure that other countries might have used to educate and train their youth. India cannot. India will not be able to. Uh, India does not have the uh, sort of sufficient education infrastructure today, whether it's schools or teachers, etc. And that's why there's this compulsion in India, I believe, that at tech, where you are able to take one teacher, but that one teacher can then teach or train a lot more people than you know you would be able to in a traditional classroom. That fundamentally have you invested in ed tech? Uh, we haven't uh, yet. We've looked at several companies. Looking for investment. Um, looking for investment in that for sure. Um, and the idea there is to to be able to, and that's why you know you've seen companies like Baidu's, <coughs> you've seen companies like An Academy, etc., <coughs> that are starting to scale a fair bit in the Indian context. Uh, for the longest mm-hmm. time. Investors wanted to invest in edtech, but were finding that most of the models would not scale beyond a certain point. I think that was more a function of the tech infrastructure, the internet infrastructure being lacking, than the idea being lacking. And I think now what we're finding is that the idea is also there, and the, in, the internet infrastructure has improved significantly in the last two, three years, and yes. I think it will continue to. Okay. As, yeah. as it does, you'll find that uh, edtech should become a big, big uh, opportunity for India and for Indian entrepreneurs. What about private label uh, products? So, and I, let me elaborate on the question. Um, you know, my thesis is that right now with Flipkart and um, the Flipkart Amazon battle or the e-commerce players in general that are struggling somewhat, they've all kind of focused on logistics and not so much on product-based differentiation. They are developing private label strategies now. But I I happen to think that there is a, a very sizable opportunity for building really unique brands that are built out of India for Indian market, global market, whatever, but really interesting, unique brands, taking advantage of some of the um, cheap labor available, um, you know, developing that talent and so forth, and, and that could be fashion brands, that could be lifestyle brands, all sorts of things. Are you seeing that in any of the deal flow? Yeah, no, incidentally, actually, that's one of our focus areas as well. I, I completely agree with your thesis that, uh, that there should be and can be more 
brands out of India that are unique to India, are uniquely addressing some need in India, uniquely addressing the millennial consumer in India, uniquely addressing different segments in India, plus then expanding abroad because India has a lot to offer, whether it's fashion, whether it's luxury, whether it's food, um, tea, coffee, um, fruits, you know, so uh, sort of agri products, textile products, obviously. So I agree with you that there's a lot of opportunity there. I think that uh, it's early days uh, in a way for brand building in India, but it's very exciting times because I think we're on the cusp of something that could become big. You're finding that, you know, in every uh, in each sector, some of the ones that you mentioned, for example, in fashion and luxury and uh, food, you're finding a bunch of these brands, bunch of brands cropping up uh, that are targeting not just the Indian market but globally uh, have their eye on the global market as well. So, for example, a brand like Anita Dongre today, which is in the fashion space, um, has gone from being a Bombay-based brand to first a national brand in India to now. Um, I believe they just opened their first store in New York. There are brands from the diamond industry, for example, Nirav Modi, you know, again, started off uh, in India with one store in Delhi to, to now several outlets, I think, across the world, right, in Asia, the Middle East, and the U.S., I believe, right? So, so I think uh, similarly on the tea, coffee, or the food side, there are very interesting brands coming up here that are trying to take you know, Indian tea or Indian coffee to the world, right? India is one of the biggest producers of tea globally, but um, yeah. you'll find that most of the brands in the global tea market are not brands out of India. Mata is a big um, player, but Unilever is a big player as well. And Tata has grown globally by acquiring uh, many of the brands outside of India. Um, but beyond Tata, I would say that, you know, there aren't that many other Indian tea brands, for example, similarly yeah. on the coffee side. Uh, mm -hmm. But very interesting times because we are seeing uh, activity. Uh, I'll tell you what challenges some of these brands are facing, uh, which makes it harder for some investors like us also to invest actively in them today, is that, uh, you know, so the, the venture capital industry in India has, anyway suffered from the fact that the exits are very hard to come by and everything in India yes. takes longer to build. Uh, and there's a, there's a market where you require patience. Right? I think everyone knows that or understands that uh, as well. Um, with brands, the thing is that it's even harder and even longer term process. Yes. Right? I'm not sure when Anita, for example, started. I don't know the exact year, but I know they've been around for at least 15, 20 years. Uh, I would think at the bare minimum. Similarly, with Nirav Modi, etc., uh, on the fashion and diamond jewelry side, uh, if you were to take any FMCG brand, uh, so for example, in the US, you know, you found that uh, there are companies like Honesty and companies yeah. like Vita uh, Coco and a uh, bunch of these uh, beverage companies, for example, or even your dollar shaving clubs and Wobby Parkers of the world that have within a three to five year period uh, managed to grow, scale uh, very quickly. In the Indian consumer market, however, we're finding that many of these brands, uh, whether it's brands that are trying to be like a Wobby Parker uh, or the dollar shaving club, etc., 
are finding it very hard to scale because the market that they're trying to target, which is usually the premium end of the market, in India still tends to be very small. Uh, yeah, so I think the, the point that you're raising is, I think, a broader point about the Indian market, uh, Anirudh. I think they're, the, in general, companies scale slower. In, if you're, especially if you're doing an India, Indian market-facing company of any kind, it, the companies tend to scale much slower than U.S. companies. And, and what, what we've seen as a result is, um, you know, the early-stage investors, the pre-seed, seed, uh, investors, maybe even Series A investors, they take the companies up to a certain point and then they exit into the later stage investors and not stay. I mean, it would, could take you five years, seven years of early stage activity before the company gets to a point where a Series B or a Series C can be raised. And at that point, the, the original investors have stayed too long already and they need to exit out. Do, do you agree that this is a real trend in the Indian industry? It is, it is, uh, for sure. It's, it's, it's a major... And I think that is the way to uh, mitigate the Series A gap or, you know, the gap between the early stage investors and the later stage investors. Um, in India, I think this is a, a strategy that is understood and is being practiced quite extensively. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So what about unicorn mania? Are you uh, seeing, I, I know India went completely crazy with unicorn mania for a while, but are you seeing um, a slowdown in unicorn mania? As a seed investor, how do you prevent yourselves from getting buried under later stage liquidation preferences and so forth? What, what practices are you deploying to prevent such unappetizing outcomes? See, Unicorn Mania, I think, has uh, come down a little bit, thankfully. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was a, it, it was an aberration. It was not focused on fundamentals. It was right. hype and a bit of mania, as you said. Um, so, uh, thankfully, it has slowed down a little bit. I think that, uh, for, which is a good thing. From our perspective, see, what we try and do is, and I'll come to liquidation preference questions specifically in the end, but our, yep. our, our uh, focus has always been on fundamentals. And it's very tough sometimes to stay focused on fundamentals when the market around you is seeing so much fraud. Yeah, when the market goes crazy, uh, fundamentals go out of the window. And that's when it becomes really difficult to rein in the entrepreneurs because they start getting carried away. Actually, more than the entrepreneurs actually investors around you are getting uh, <laughs> carried away because they feel like anything that they invest uh, will turn into a, you know, 5, 10, 15, 30, 100x multiple very quickly because there's a bigger investor out there who's just waiting to invest in a company that... Yeah, and, um, and I think the, the reason I said entrepreneur is getting carried away is because, you know, if you have a savvy entrepreneur who understands the the ramifications and the risks of taking too much capital into a company, then those investor mania can be checked. But if you have an entrepreneur who is inexperienced and unseasoned, the entrepreneur starts to get carried away, and that's when the investors flood the company with capital, undeserved amounts of capital, and it's very the whole thing kind of goes out of proportion, right? Yeah, I think that, you know, to be honest, like both 
have to be both have to have steady heads on their shoulders the entrepreneur and yeah. the investor no kidding often what happens is when if the entrepreneur wants to and i have seen some of these cases where the entrepreneur actually wanted to move slower believed that the business needed more time but they were looking around and there were competitors of theirs who were saying that listen screw it if i can raise 50 million dollars or 20 million dollars or 100 million dollars today let me raise that money and then i'll see if my investors are willing yeah. the people who are putting in the money they are willing to let me have very high burns and very high um, you know quick hiring and quick scaling then what why why should i be conservative and so if your competitors are thinking like that and then suddenly you even though you focus on fundamentals and entrepreneur you suddenly start second guessing yourself uh, and then your investors start second guessing himself and then finally all of the conservatism or the the cautious pop cautious sort of way in which you should approach scale and go out of the window um so it's a bit of a it's a bit of a two way street i think both the entrepreneur and the investor have to be on the same page about you know what the plan is to build a business how to yeah. build the business to scale Absolutely. how much time it will actually take to fundamentally scale with very easy to scale unsustainably um lose a lot of yeah. money and so food tech for example was a big victim of that right and as were hyper local deliveries and grocery and stuff like that where fundamentally the companies would not, would not would not have made money the margins were not there and uh, yeah. and, and they were still scaling and even the basic principle of scaling is that you should be able to make money as you scale right uh, you should not be scaling like unit like economics needs to be preserved unit economics right um and so you were finding that in grocery in hyper local deliveries people were just scaling um, without thinking about unit economics and And that's true in the US as well. That that disease has been rampant in in the US and in India and in that sector especially that has been the delivery based businesses have really really damaged that uh, the whole economics fundamental economics. How are you dealing with the liquidation preference issue? See liquidation preference is a very tough but so right uh, we don't have a solution for that so right tough problem uh, especially for early stage investors um the right tough problem we don't have like a a, a a a solution for it per se except to try and legally you know in the beginning you try and um, have your uh, SHAs and your agreements with the with the companies uh protect you to some extent but to be honest what happens is when the company is scaling uh and it needs more capital then the guy who's bringing in the big dollars Check. will yeah. have a larger say than the person who's brought in a small chunk right so right. that's the reality of the, the game i think so it's hard to hard to completely protect yourself i think the the goal here or the way to do it actually is you know when when technical solutions are not working then i think the only thing you can rely on is human relationships and so uh, so for us always it's it's a matter of building good relationships with uh, all players in the ecosystem not just entrepreneurs but also later stage investors um, just have good working relationships with them so that you know when you do need to exit or when you do need to return some capital and investors uh, if you have a good relay working relationship with some of the later stage investors then it's much easier uh, to try and get something like that done uh, as opposed to when there's a big divide between early stage investors and 
later stage investors. Um, so well, the other thing that, that uh, I think, uh, <laughs> you know, some at some level, you kind of have to make a smart choice about when do you exit. And if you if a company is starting to get into a bit of a bubbly, frothy mode, it may not be a bad idea for company for funds of your stage to exit. That's right. That's exactly right. I think, and 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 we do follow that strategy, uh, but. Uh, you know, on the other hand, the latest investors are also very clear that they don't want their money uh, for growth. to be going into pockets of other investors. They want that money to be going into the company for growth, right? So, so right. sometimes there is a bit of a, a conflict of interest between the early stage investors' interests and the later stage investors' interests. Uh, sometimes yeah. they're aligned. Um, but most of the time, it's through conversation and, uh, you know, good working relationships that you can get on the same page you know sometimes uh it's conversation that that helps as opposed to some legal uh, clauses that could help you know because ultimately as i was saying the 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 leverage is much better for the latest season master because he's he or she's bringing in a big yeah. amount of capital the company requires at that time. So. Unless there is a lot of yeah, com- competition perhaps, am- amongst later stage investors to get into a deal, in which case you can, you do have the option of selling out. Right. See, ultimately, it's a supply and demand game always, uh, yeah. no matter what you're talking about, whether it's valuation or, or, right. or, or exits or clauses like what we're discussing, liquidation preferences. Ultimately, the supply and demand situation, the better the right. company is doing the, the so, uh, last question, Anirudh. One of my observations is that we are in 2017, end of 2017. We're almost in 2018, and lots of stuff have already been built. So nowadays, there aren't as many wide open opportunities out there, but there are many, many niche opportunities. And some of these businesses need to be built for small amounts of capital, say one to two million, and sold for 10 to 15 million. Some maybe invest 250 to 500k and sell for 5 to 10 million and still get good multiples and especially uh, given the indian cost structure advantage this is actually quite attractive for the indian entrepreneurs what is your take on these kinds of uh, definitely non unicorn more niche um, opportunities uh see two uh, i have Two points on this. I see. First would be that we are open, completely open for something like that. Like as 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 you're saying, to invest small amounts at a low valuation and then have an exit for a five ten million dollar valuation. Um, there's a more appetite for a small acquisition of ten million, five million, fifteen million here amongst the Indian companies than there is for a hundred, two hundred, three hundred million dollar acquisition. That's right. It also so tackles the exit investment. problem. Correct. Um, so, so, so for sure, like as early stage investors, we 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 definitely open to such kind of uh, opportunities. However, the problem actually, the second point that I was going to make was that unfortunately, the venture business is built in a way that you can't plan for uh, plan to invest in companies where you are aiming for a five to ten dollar, ten million dollar uh, valuation at the time of exit. Um, the reason I say that is ultimately, you know, you know that a bunch of your companies are going to fail, and if the max you're getting is a five, ten x on a on, on on some of your companies, then 
you might not end up as a fund at the fund level uh, end up making good returns. And so you're obviously looking for the multi-baggers and the big winners, right? Um, yeah. So you have to swing for the fences uh, to some extent when you're an early stage investor. Um, and that's the only thing that goes against the the the, the preference for investing in companies where you know that you know these companies could be bought for five to ten million dollars because uh, of the overall fund economics issue. That said, that said, um, I have to say that uh, when I see the Indian landscape today, I as I was saying earlier, like I see that there's a lot of opportunity for companies to uh, be bought at that ten million dollar stage before they get into, you know, what, what many people call the value of debt, where they become too yes. highly valued. Too much money and too much funding and not yeah. exit. Yeah, no exit. Um, it's, you know, so it's, it's a dangerous uh, stage to go into. Um, so a lot of entrepreneurs, I you know, I'm friends with or who are in that stage, I often advise them that, listen, like a $10 million exit is not a bad exit, you know, in the right. context. Uh, so it's not like that they should immediately dismiss it. Um, and they should look at it uh, rationally and see whether that's a good outcome or whether there's realistic chance that they'll get a better outcome, you know, at a $50 million, $100 million valuation, right? So so I think it's, it's a bit of, uh, there's no, like, um, hard and fast rule on it, but I think it's something that investors and entrepreneurs both should be open to. Yeah, okay, cool. Very, very good conversation, Anirudh. Uh, let me know if you're uh, in the valley and come by for a coffee and we can continue the conversation. Meanwhile, uh, we will look forward to publishing this. Folks who are listening, uh, if you're enjoying these conversations, and we have published many, many, many of them already and will continue to do so, please go to iTunes and review the show and uh, tell us what you think and uh, write to us with your feedback. And we look forward to also seeing many of you at our Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Pacific time, free public roundtables where we offer free mentoring to entrepreneurs all over the world. Thank you for attending, and we will see you soon. Take care. Thanks, Mona.